Hi, this is Mr. Benson on the first day of chemistry class at Stevens Point Wisconsin High School. I'm here with my second hour class. Hey, Where we just finished a discussion on the importance of finding reliable sources of credible information. This podcast was recorded at... There's deep irony here because I almost failed high school chemistry. It is 3.04 Eastern on Thursday, September 6th. Things may have changed by the time you hear it. All right, here's the show, and... Go Panthers! That's great. It was my two-year-old's first day of nursery school. Oh, today, man. too. Chemistry so... class is just around the corner. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> hey there, it's the NPR Politics Podcast. Here with our weekly roundup of the week's biggest political stories, we've been following Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh's hearings all week. In the middle of all of that, a senior official in the Trump administration, that's how this person is being referred to by The New York Times, published an op-ed in the paper scathingly critiquing the president and saying people are working from within the administration to contain President Trump. I'm Scott Detrow. I cover Congress. I'm Mara Liason, national political correspondent. I'm Aisha Roscoe. I cover the White House. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. So we got to walk through step by step this op-ed. But does this take the like the award so far for like the most out there shocking story that has suddenly happened? Or is that still <laughs> up in the air? I mean, there's a lot of contenders, but this is in the conversation. Well, maybe that has suddenly happened. I mean, I don't yeah. know about <laughs> I don't know about last week. It's up there. It's up I, I there. think it's hard with this time <laughs> in, I, that we're in yeah. to to kind of say. I think we're going to have to rank those at the end of all this, whatever yeah. point in the future, with some distance. You know, it's really unusual. I mean, it's it's not something that's ever been done before, where you have an administration official, a, a senior administration official. Even though I know there are many of them within the administration, we have no no clues about this, right? We have no idea if this is someone who works directly with the president in the White House. We have no idea if this is somebody who works at one of the multitude of agencies around the city. The thing about this is it was a surprise. In other words, people have known that Michael Cohen was being looked at by investigators. People knew Bob Woodward was writing a book. Nobody knew this was going to happen yesterday. But it is of a piece with the narrative that is forming around the Trump presidency. There was a joke early on in the Trump administration about the so-called Committee to Save America, these top administration officials who were going to make sure that Donald Trump didn't start World War III or something like that. Like that. Uh, the Woodward book mines these same themes. So the content wasn't surprising. Yeah. The format and the timing was. And we should say the Bob Woodward book is is called Fear. It's supposed to be out next week. And it's basically a look at the Trump White House the first months, year and a half or so. It's supposed to be based on interviews with people in the, within the West Wing and former officials. It's in line with the op-ed, basically, that uh, certain people would try to steal documents off of President Trump's desk to make sure he wouldn't, like, uh, kill the NAFTA deal or kill the trade agreement with South Korea. Uh, so it, it's all in line. Let's take a step back because as we're recording, this has been out for about a day now, but just to give the full context, Wednesday evening, the New York Times suddenly publishes this opinion piece by an anonymous author who is uh, characterized as a senior official in the Trump administration. Uh, let's all pick a a section of this op-ed and read it out loud just to, to get the context of it. I'll start off. They uh, they go through the problems President Trump is facing. The dilemma, which he does not fully grasp, is that many of the senior officials in his own administration are working diligently from within 
to frustrate parts of his agenda and his worst inclinations, I would know I am one of them. Well, just picking up on that (laughs) self-serving theme here... Um, One of the reactions to the op-ed, of course, has been how self-serving it was, kind of, you know, don't worry, conservatives, we've got the mad king under control and you'll still get your conservative judges and tax cuts. So in that in that line, my favorite section was this. The erratic behavior would be more concerning if it weren't for unsung heroes in and around the White House. Like me. S- like me. Some of his... A- we're annotating Well, they're unsung it. because they're yeah, anonymous. Yeah. yeah, well, they're not anonymous anymore. <laughs> uh, some of his aides have been cast as villains by the media, but in private they've gone to great lengths to keep bad decisions contained to the White House, though clearly they're not always successful. It may be cold comfort in this chaotic era Ooh, a lot of alliteration. What did they used to say about that? Alliteration is the sign of a small mind. But Americans hey. should know that there are I adu- like alliteration. Wait, but Americans should know that there are adults in the room. So the this is just full of self-serving cliches. Though it does it does have some some pretty harsh characterizations, oh, especially no doubt coming about that. from an ally of President Trump. Well, uh, supposedly. I, when I read this, I could only think of certain. I was trying to think of adjectives like when I was kind of like writing this up. And all I could think is that this is really damning. This was a scathing uh, assessment of President Trump. So this struck me, this, this sentence, the root of the problem is the president's amorality. Anyone who works with him knows he is not more to any discernible first principles that guide his decision making. Wow. So uh, you're saying that the president, the person who you work for, is amoral and uh, anti-democratic and unstable and 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 erratic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that it was that amorality line was definitely one that really stood out. I thought, you know, the other part of it that stood out to me when I was reading it was how much this person talked about John McCain and seemed to kind of come from the establishment Republican doctrinaire, uh, you know, class. He writes, he or she writes, Senator John McCain put it best in his farewell letter. All Americans should heed his words and break free of the tribalism trap with the high aim of uniting through our shared values and love of this great nation. Then goes on to say, we may no longer have Senator McCain, but we will always have his example, a lodestar for restoring honor to public life and our national dialogue. And that wasn't a stick, here. if that wasn't a finger right in the eye of Donald Trump, I don't know what is. That yeah. was designed to get his go. Well, if you don't know that was, he, the next sentence was, Mr. Trump may fear such honorable men, but we should revere them. So yeah. if they didn't it's, get the it, message it, the first time. It, it, they, they, they drove it home then. Yeah. They drove it home. And, and but, the New York Times has, has, um, has indicated that this was in the works before the cycle of, of revelations from Bob Woodward's book. So, so I wonder if the McCain funeral proceedings were what triggered this, because it didn't seem to be stories about a dysfunctional White House coming out in a new Bob Woodward book. I wanted to linger for a second on that word lodestar, because that <laughs> sent the internet on fire yeah. with suspecting who it might be. Um, and a lot of people pointed to Mike Pence, <laughs> the vice president, because it's a word that he's happened to use in public uh, before. Uh, so people were cross-checking <laughs> that word with uh, with the with various senior administration officials' speeches. Yes. I didn't realize this was an <laughs> uncommon word because so so I, I went to NPR.org, typed in Lodestar. Uh-huh. One person who appears on our podcast semi-regularly has had this word pop up in, in multiple stories. Do you guys want to guess who has written Lodestar more than any of us? Ron Elvin. Yeah. Ron, Ron Elvin. Elvin. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. <laughs> Ron has used Lodestar, so maybe it's him. It may, but, yeah. uh, <laughs> 
um, but you know, this just this is the part of the game, right? I mean, people are just cross-checking. They're trying to wonder. They're trying to see. There's there are no clues within this article about exactly who this person would be. And the Times has been very careful uh, not to give anything away on who this individual is. But you can pretty much guarantee that people are trying to root them out. Not only people who are reporters, but within the White House, there have been reports of the president. Uh, you know, kind of in a in a mode here where he, they're trying to root out not only who the person is who wrote this, but as Aisha, you know, alluded to, the, who were the sources in the Woodward book? Well, well the president guys... the president tweeted uh, for national. He said for national security purposes, the New York Times should identify this person and hand him over to the government right away. So it's so interesting how this story has basically underlined everything we already knew about reporting what life in the White House is like. We already know that Donald Trump's instincts around the rule of law are generally to see it as rule of man. In other words, this follows by just days him excoriating Jeff Sessions as attorney general and saying he shouldn't be investigating Republican congressmen before the midterm elections. Let me let me uh, push back on all of this. And, and I'm interested what all of you have to say on this, because obviously there are really damning details here. Uh, the, the This op-ed mentions at one point that, that staffers talked about invoking the 25th Amendment where the cabinet can remove the president of the United States. But couldn't you argue that this is a great development for President Trump in the way that he likes to frame things, in the way that he likes to rally his supporters. He constantly says the deep state is out to get him. He constantly says the media is out to get him. And here, an anonymous person within his administration writes in the New York Times of all places that they're trying to undermine him. Well, you know, this is why you have seen criticisms of this op-ed from people who are against Donald Trump. As a matter of fact, I had a White House official say to me today, you can't call him paranoid anymore. You know the phrase, even paranoids have enemies. Well, this just totally corroborates his feeling that everyone in Washington is out to get him. And if the purpose of these patriotic... uh, whatever they call, he called it in the op-ed, steady staters, was to save the country. The result unsung could be that they... Heroes. Yes, unsung heroes. They, the result could be that they just make the president more angry and paranoid, exactly the behavior they say they're trying to stop. I think that's the thing that I've actually was wondering about most was, what is the point of writing this, right? Like, what what is this person who says they want to save the country from Trump's worst instincts actually trying to accomplish? Was it just that they were so moved by John McCain's funeral that they wanted to say it? Were they trying trying to stick a thumb in Trump's eye and say, we're here, putting it out to the newspaper that Trump loves and hates the most with the biggest platform in the entire country. What is the point? You know, what is it that this person's trying to accomplish? Couldn't it just sort of make Trump even more um, you know, emotive. Is this sure. intended to provoke him, I wonder? Yeah. And, you know, one of the other theories was that it's a message to Republicans. Don't worry. You don't have to abandon ship. We've got the Mad King under control. You're still going to get your tax cuts and your conservative judges. Since we don't know the person's motives, I think that what we can say is that this makes President Trump's management style, whatever it is, something's not working right. Not when you <laughs> when you have people talking to Bob Woodward about taking documents off desks, when you have 
have someone writing an op-ed saying you're amoral and you don't know who it is. So the president of the United States, you're supposed to be, you know, leading the executive branch and the, the Department of Defense. And you're supposed to be able to track down terrorists and do all these things. And you have people in your own ranks who you don't know what they're writing, what they're talking, whether they're working against you. It's that um, it's the quote that Reince Priebus had in this Woodward book. Uh, when you put a snake and a rat and a falcon and a rabbit and a shark and a seal in a zoo without walls, things start getting nasty and bloody. It's like, yeah, but, but what happens to the snake and the falcon and the shark in round two? That's what I want to know. <laughs> well. <laughs> like, that's the, the question is what happens after this? Where, where, where do we go from here? And how can president, if they don't find out soon who this person is, uh, how do you function knowing that someone within your ranks was able to do this and get away with it? And does it embolden other people within the administration who may feel like they can undermine the president to do more stuff like this? I have one last thing I want to flag, and then I have one last question for Mara on all this. But I, I think this this kind of funny outcome of this is that it's almost like a who's who in Washington now of not just guessing, but people feeling the need to say, you know, it wasn't me. I don't know what to do. Oh, that was definitely the headline today. The headline today was "It wasn't me." And I'll tell you something: if you you try, yes, if you look at the list, (laughs) CNN has compiled the list of people who issued statements saying it wasn't them. Wasn't me. Dan Coats, Vice President Pence, Secretary of State Pompeo, Jim Mattis, Ben Carson, Steve Mnuchin, Nikki Haley. I mean, it's, it goes on who, and on. Who has Perry, it? Perry, Purdue, Wilkie, Mulvaney, <laughs> right, Sessions. Like if you haven't, then it's you're incredible. not important enough, you know? It wasn't me. Saw me banging on the sofa. It wasn't me. I even had her in the shower. It wasn't me. She even but... Also, do we know that those people are telling the truth? No, we if, don't. If you, were, if you were the writer, wouldn't, yeah, would you admit it? Would say you that, say You'd say that person should be fired. Yeah. They yeah. shouldn't even be part of this administration <laughs> anymore. They're a coward. And, and this administration has leaked very badly. So this has been a, an administration where people are known for stabbing each other in the back and going after each other. So, so this is kind of par for that course. So, Mara, Mara, here's the question I had for you. You've covered several administrations that have been knocked on their heels by a Bob Woodward book. You know, um, certainly the details in this one are, are beyond some of the previous details. But have you ever covered anything like this? No, but you can say that every single day in the Trump administration. <laughs> it's a good question, though, each time it happens. No, no. And as a matter of fact, today I felt that the White House was pretty tense and unhappy, but it's often that way. And there is a kind of battle weariness where people were saying, look, this might be a new forum, but this kind of thing has been covered by anonymous quotes in 10 or 15 New York Times articles. Yeah. So, you know, it was ever thus. Yeah. And and I'll tell you something. The other, the I mean, we talked about how this just underlines all the themes we already know about the Trump White House. The other thing it underlines is that for a president who prizes loyalty to him above all, he has had a lot of betrayals in a very short period of time. Michael Cohen, Omarosa, the Woodward sources, and now this op-ed. Who can who can he trust, Ivanka? Jared Kushner. What if it was Ivanka or Jared? I, that she would that would be. She hasn't put the out a twist. statement. She hasn't. No. <laughs> we will certainly be following up on this if anything new comes out. But uh, we're going to take a quick break and we're going to come back and get to that other story that, you know, could affect the United States for the next 40 years or so. The ongoing confirmation hearings of Judge Brett Kavanaugh. 
Support for NPR Politics and the following message come from Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Introducing their all-new Rate Shield approval. If you're in the market to buy a home, Quicken Loans will lock your rate for up to 90 days while you shop. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com/nprpolitics. Rate Shield approval only valid on certain 30-year purchase transactions. Additional conditions or exclusions may apply. Based on Quicken Loans data in comparison to public data records, equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states. NMLSconsumeraccess.org number 3030. Support also comes from ZipRecruiter. Hiring is challenging, but ZipRecruiter can make it simple, smart, and fast. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 job boards with one click, Then it scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash weekly. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Sam Sanders here. You listen to my friends here on the Politics Podcast, which means that you know covering the White House has maybe never been more interesting. This week on my show, I sit down with two White House reporters to hear them reflect on all of that. Join us on It's Been a Minute from NPR. And we are back, and the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation hearings have been ongoing today. Domenico, Scott, you two have been keeping an especially close eye on on these hearings. Let's pick up with something that was pretty dramatic, and it was pretty confusing this morning. New Jersey Democrat Cory Booker and other Democrats have been frustrated all week with these documents that they haven't been able to see or documents that they've been able to see but have been remained classified within the committee. They decided to just change that themselves. What happened? That's right. And the story picked up this morning pretty close to where it left off last night. Senator Cory Booker, a Democrat from New Jersey, had been quizzing Judge Kavanaugh about some emails that he had written and also replied to when he was working in the Bush White House back in the last decade. And while he was doing this, Republicans kept jumping in and saying, well, why don't you show the judge the email so he, he's not having to sort of respond to this blindly? And Cory Booker didn't do that at the time because this is one of those documents that was turned over to the committee in sort of a confidential batch that they were the senators were allowed to look at but were not allowed to share with the public. And that sort of stewed during the night. And when the hearing opened this morning, the Democrats, beginning with Booker, were really in open revolt about this. These these restrictions on the documents have been a source of frustration to them for throughout the hearing and even before that. And it kind of boiled over this morning. Well, sir, I come from a long line, as all of us do as Americans, and understand what that, that kind of civil disobedience is, and I understand the consequences. So I am right now, before your before your um, process is finished, I'm going to release the email about racial profiling. And I understand that that, the penalty comes with potential ousting from the Senate. And then you had other Democrats jumping in and saying, well, we're going to release documents too. We're all going to take the plunge and we're just going to ignore these rules that we've been so frustrated by. I concur with what you were doing and let's jump into this pit together. I hope my other colleagues will join me. So if there is going to be some retribution against the senator from New Jersey, Count me in. But, Domenico, this all took a twist as the day went on then. It certainly did. I mean, these were called, you know, committee confidential documents. And, you know, something like 7% of all of uh, Kavanaugh's 
emails and documents from his time related to being in the Bush White House had been released to the the Judiciary Committee, as Democrats would say. Only about 4% of all of that has been released publicly. And this has been part of the sticking point with Democrats. And Booker decided that he was going to kind of make this scene this morning. Democrats, as Scott notes, went along with it, saying that they're going to jump into the pit with him. But as the onions started to peel back during the day, things started to get a little trickier. And we were surprised to learn that apparently these documents had been approved overnight hmm. after Booker's questioning of uh, Kavanaugh last night. And it wasn't clear who knew about that. They were apparently approved at 3.50 in the morning, according to Senator Grassley's office, that lawyers from senators were notified that their requests had been honored, which is what Grassley's office is saying. But it didn't appear that at the early morning session that even Republicans or Grassley himself knew about that. Yeah, during the theatrics this morning, no one seemed to be suggesting that these had been approved for release. But was there anything substantial in them once they were released? That's the thing. There's these these documents. There's there's no huge surprise, no huge smoking gun in these documents. The documents that Senator Booker was questioning Judge Kavanaugh about had to do with various race conscious programs, either racial set asides uh, for the Department of Transportation or racial profiling by national security apparatus in the wake of the September 11th attacks. Now, in the case of racial profiling, Judge Kavanaugh wrote that uh, ultimately they should adopt security measures that were race neutral, although he conceded there that might take some time. Mm-hmm. When it came to some of the affirmative action programs that the uh, Department of Transportation was practicing, he did raise reservations about that. Not really a surprise for a conservative judge to express those. This is interesting because this could this is the kind of issue that could come before the Supreme Court in, a, say, an affirmative action college admissions case. There are some of those percolating. And it could be that if uh, Judge Kavanaugh becomes Justice Kavanaugh, he could tip the balance and move the move the bar on where the Supreme Court stands on that. So why why were these documents being withheld from the public to begin with? If, as you say, they're not really that surprising or there's no bombshell in them. Bill Burke, who is the uh, attorney, the personal attorney to George W. Bush, who is essentially running this process, which is another thing that Democrats are annoyed about. He'd early on had said that uh, a lot of the these emails had to do with deliberations between a president and his staff and that that should be uh, constitutionally privileged because that's not the kind of information you want out there, at least he's saying. Otherwise, then why would a president have open back and forth, you know, with his staff. At the same time, Democrats that are basically criticizing Republicans for saying that they're trying to hide information because there were emails, for example, today that were released by the New York Times or leaked to the New York Times about uh, Kavanaugh's position on potential position on abortion and Roe v. Wade. Yeah, let's get to that because, you know, we're, we're talking about these documents that, that senators were putting at themselves. Separately, the New York Times obtained some some information, some emails from the same uh, source of documents and Senator Dianne Feinstein quickly asked Kavanaugh about some of those emails in the hearing. Once again, tell us why you believe Roe is settled law. And if you could, do you believe it is correctly settled? Mm-hmm. So thank you, Senator Feinstein. In that draft letter, uh, it was referring to the views of uh, legal scholars. And I 
think I, I think my comment in the email is that might be overstating the position of legal scholars, and so it wasn't a technically accurate description in the letter of what legal scholars thought. At that time, I believe Chief Justice Rehnquist and Justice Scalia were still on the court at that time, but the, the broader point was simply that I think it was overstating something uh, about legal scholars, and I'm always concerned with accuracy. So and this I is something Kavanaugh did really throughout the week during these hearings is to sort of s- summarize the state of uh, legal scholarship or Supreme Court precedents without really giving us a window into what he thinks about these these cases. And, and he, again, didn't answer Senator Feinstein's question there about whether he believes Roe was correctly decided. He's, he's ducked that question uh, throughout these hearings. And it's important because, of course, if he becomes a Supreme Court justice, he would have a vote to overturn the longstanding precedent there if he chose to do so. And I think this is the real importance of the documents because the documents reveal uh, at least more, uh, you know, a little bit more of his personal views on these things, and or at least more candid views, you know, because he's he's still doing his job in talking about, uh, you know, the constitutionality of, for example, wiretapping or the constitutionality of uh, whether or not you should uh, use racial profiling when someone goes through uh, an airport. And he was saying no in that instance. He doesn't think that that is a good idea. Do we expect more documents to come out? Is this the end of it? Are are we through with the documents or, or could there be more? This is it. I mean, you know, there may be there may be uh, documents that wind up being released uh, by some Democrats on the committee for things that have already been turned over to the committee. But, uh, you know, as far as whether or not they matter or it matters, you know, Republicans probably have the votes here to confirm Kavanaugh. And, you know, once this is uh, once today is done with, That's it. One more thing to flag that was also a little cryptic and confusing. Uh, Late last night when uh, Senator Kamala Harris uh, got her chance to ask questions, it was something like 10 o'clock at night. Uh, There was this really intriguing cryptic moment that that led to a lot of questions where, where, where Harris was questioning Kavanaugh and she asked him if he had ever had a conversation about the Mueller investigation with anyone working at a law firm connected to Mark Kasowitz, who's one of President Trump's personal lawyers. And she asked the question, Kavanaugh seemed confused. Have you had this conversation with anyone about the investigation that Bob Mueller is conducting regarding Russia interference with our election or any other matter? The fact that it's ongoing, it's a topic in the news every day. I talked to it's uh, talk to fellow judges about it. It's in our, you know, it's in the courthouse in uh, the District of Columbia. So and I guess uh, and the answer to that is time. yes. So the answer is yes. Okay. And did you talk with anyone at Kasowitz, Benson, and Torres? You, you asked me that. I need to know who works there. And she kept prog- probing and pushing and seemed to indicate that she had some specific piece of information about a, a conversation Kavanaugh had had. Let's listen to that for a moment. How can you not remember whether or not you had a conversation about Robert Mueller or his investigation with anyone at that law firm? This investigation has only been going on for so long, sir. So right, please I'm not sure the I do. I, I I'm just trying to think. Do I know anyone who works at that firm? I might know. Ed- have you had? A, that's not my question. My question is: Have you had a conversation with anyone at that firm about that investigation? It's a really specific question. 
I would like to know the person you're thinking of, because what if there's... I think you're thinking of someone and you don't want to tell us. <laughs> Who did you have a conversation with at the I, I am... I'm not Mr. Chairman, did we learn anything else about this today? Not yet, because Kamala Harris is uh, further down the list on seniority, so she hasn't been able to ask questions yet today. And it really there, you heard her sound like she had the goods. We don't know if she actually did. Does she, you know, in poker terms, she's sitting with a pair of twos um, or is, you know, or or is uh, Kavanaugh going to be calling her bluff? We did have some maybe tantalizing suggestions today. Uh, it's been pointed out that in one of his memos to Robert Mueller last year, Mark Kasowitz did make reference to some rather obscure language in a Kavanaugh decision. So uh, there's certainly a question of whether that was brought to her, what brought to Kasowitz's attention by Kavanaugh himself or he became aware of it some other way. Uh, and But then we also had a statement from the Kasowitz firm saying, no, nobody there ever talked to Brett Kavanaugh. And worth flagging here that we have now gotten into some high-profile moments with two people on the committee who are often talked about as possible 2020 presidential candidates. That's Cory Booker and Kamala Harris. Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota also in that conversation and has also tried to make the most of her rounds of questioning. Oh, yeah. Amy Klobuchar was really playing the cheap seats yesterday when she went into a lengthy discussion of antitrust law okay. with uh, Fred Kavanaugh. You know, she, of all of the senators, she probably did the best job of the Democrats being able to bore into his decisions. Um, she and you went, mean drill, not put people to sleep. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, no, she tried to drill down uh, into some of these actual cases yeah. of Kavanaugh's. And I think we did learn a little bit about his view on campaign finance, for example. So testimony continuing as we tape this podcast, expected to go for a while longer tonight. Uh, the, the hearings continue tomorrow with uh, witnesses testifying, t- testifying both for and against Kavanaugh. We will keep you posted on how this proceeds, the committee vote, the full Senate vote, as that all happens. Uh, For now, we're going to take a quick break and come back with Can't Let It Go. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Comedy Central. Get your daily news fix by listening to The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. It's like The Daily Show, but for your ears. Studies show ears are great for listening. And who are we to deny science? Trevor Noah and the world's fakest news team tackle the biggest stories in news, politics, and pop culture. Subscribe to The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition, available Tuesday through Friday mornings on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your ears on a podcast. As soon as you wake up, you need the latest. That's why Up First is here. It's NPR's morning news podcast. In just 10 minutes or so, you can start your day informed. Listen to Up First on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back and we are going to end the show like we do every single week talking about that one thing we cannot let go, politics or otherwise. Aisha, you're going to go first. I know you're going to talk a little bit about the Facebook and Twitter hearings. But before we get to the can't let it go attitude of the hearings, can you just give us a quick recap of what was going on on the Hill? So on the Hill, you had the Twitter CEO, Jack Dorsey, and you had a a top executive from Facebook. You had Sheryl Sandberg. They were on the Hill. And so there was a, a hearing that was in the Senate, and that was focused on basically 
kind of election security, the way that social media has been used to influence people uh, and that maybe Russia and other bad actors have used it to kind of influence our elections. So that's kind of what the focus of that was. And then in the House, there was a hearing on this idea of conservatives being censored or or Mm -hmm. being being kind of shut out or not promoted properly on social media. But the best part of the House hearing was you had Congressman Billy Long of Missouri, who in his prior life, he owned an auction company and he was an auctioneer. That's right. And so there was this protester who got up and was talking. Jack Dorsey is trying to influence the election, huh? to sway the election. What's she saying? I can't understand her. What? And she was over-talked or filibustered by Billy Long doing the auctioneering. I don't know how many in 12 and a half, 15, 7 and a half, 20 dollars, 2 and a half, 5 and 7 and a half, 30. Yep, 30 dollars down here, 2 and a half, 5, 35, 7 and a half, 40. So, do we deserve a country? I don't... <laughs> you know, look, I think... Billy Long deserves a country, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> I thought that was Sold awesome. to the highest bidder. Yeah. Yeah. 4 and a quarter, 4 and a half. Hit 4 and a half, 4 and a half, 5 and a quarter, 5 and a half. I yield back. Well, Dominica, I don't. I think you're next, but like you're such a downer right I'm now. I'm gonna bring it up a little bit. That was just. I was like so confused by what was happening. It just does make me sad. Anyway, my can't let it go is. Uh, I feel a little more uplifting, and you know, I was thinking about the NFL a little bit. And while the NFL is not necessarily the most uplifting thing, uh, generally these days because of all the political controversy with the flag, and then there's this controversy with Colin Kaepernick now in uh, Nike commercials. I kind of wanted to, you know, not necessarily go to that, but I read this article about Shaquem Griffin. I don't know if you guys have heard of him. He's the place for the Seattle Seahawks. He is a rookie this year. He's starting for the first time and he only has one hand. I saw that. It's kind of amazing. Yeah. He's playing deep. And what's even more crazy about this, he's going to play on the same defense as his twin brother. It's like kind of amazing. So, you know, and he's just has this great story where his uh, hand had to be amputated from uh, when he was a kid because of a childhood prenatal condition. Um, And, you know, just really kind of lives up to that idea that nothing can hold you down. This is a guy who can bench press 225 pounds 20 times. With, with one hand. With one hand. Wow, and he uses a prosthesis uh, for the other hand to do the bench press. He actually wasn't even invited to the Seahawks combine, which are basically tryouts. And then there was video of him uh, doing these bench presses, got the attention of all of these coaches. And then they saw his 40 time. In other words, how fast do you run 40-yard dash? He can do it in 4-3-8, which, by the way, is the one of the fastest times for a linebacker in 15 years and the exact same time as his twin brother. How crazy is that? <laughs> How about you, Scott? What's your can't let it go this week? So uh, last week, I was out in California for a couple of days doing a story on House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi, talking to her about how she views Democrats' chances next year, and also getting into this idea of whether or not Nancy Pelosi is facing some political challenges more than she has in the past because of the amount of, of newcomer candidates who, who say that they, uh, that they don't want to vote for her to be speaker if, if Democrats win back the House majority. So over the course of, of, of 
looking into reading up on Nancy Pelosi and preparing for that 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 interview and story, uh, somebody mentioned to me something that I found a little hard to believe. But it turns out uh, this is this has been something that Pelosi's talked about a lot. She never when she became Speaker of the House during the four years she was Speaker of the House, never once did she make it onto the cover of Time or Newsweek. John Boehner got on the cover of one of those magazines after he became speaker, but she was never on the cover. And that's something she's pointed out sometimes as an indication of just uh, sexism and culture in the media. This was a big week for Nancy Pelosi because finally she is on the cover of Time magazine. It, it came out today. There's a long profile of her. She is on the cover for the very first time. And is it a flattering cover? It, it's a flattering cover. It's a big picture profile of her career and just gets to the fact that she was able to get things done in her speakership that no one since her and, and, and several speakers before her weren't able to do. I mean, we've talked so much about how uh, how President Trump and Republicans control everything, but haven't really passed big scale things except for tax cuts. And Pelosi got a lot of stuff done, including Obamacare, during her speakership. And and the the best argument I've heard for her continued survival as the leader of Democrats is that there's just not another Democrat who has that legislative skill that that she's built over the years. Wait, uh, let me ask you a question. Nancy Pelosi was the first female Speaker of the House, right? Yeah. And this was the first time she's on the cover of Time? Yeah, that... (laughs) <laughs> yes. I think, just, I think that's what he just said. That's what we just said. <laughs> I'm re, I'm re, I, I know. I'm just it, reiterating. It is, I think that that's un, yeah. an odd. It's odd. It's pretty it's crazy. Unbelievable. It's unbelievable. I, I was shocked when I saw that she hadn't been on a, a national magazine, on the cover of a national magazine. I, I think it has to speak to some sort of sexism. Why wouldn't you yeah. want to mark that? What was I, on the cover of Time magazine when Nancy Pelosi became House I Speaker? I pulled it up. Let me let me direct <sighs> you, Scott, to time.com slash vault slash year slash 2006. They have a, a homepage for each cover for, from each year, which was kind of like this flashback to what was in the news a decade ago. So in the lead up to the election, one Barack Obama is on the cover with a question, could Barack Obama be the next president? The answer to that, of course, was yes. But we'd have to wait um, two years to find out. <laughs> then uh, right before the election, it's a special report. And then after the election, when Democrats have won back control of the House and Senate, on the cover, George W. Bush. Well, mm. yeah. The shellacking. Mm. And then... No, no I'm sorry. No, the, thump, the thumping. Yeah. All right. Uh, Scott, you are up last. What can you not let go? Well, my can't let it go. I have to tell you a story that goes all the way back to 1977. I was 11 years old, and my folks took me to New York City, the big city, my first time ever there. We went to Radio City Music Hall. Uh, Even then, I knew where I was going, radio. (laughs) And we we went to see the Rockettes. Mm-hmm. The, the famous uh, dancing troupe from Radio City Music Hall. And I don't know if this is still the case, but in those days, if you went to see the Rockettes, they, they threw in a movie for free. You also got to see a, a movie. And it so happened that huh. the movie that was showing at Radio City Music Hall on that summer day in 1977 was Smokey and the Bandit. Aww. And we got sad news over yeah. the CB radio just as we were getting set to come into the studio this afternoon that Burt Reynolds has died at 82. And, of course, he made... A, a ton of movies during his long career. Some of them critically acclaimed, Deliverance and, and Boogie Nights, but uh, just to name a couple. But I, I always associate him and Sally Field and that black Trans Am in Smokey Absolutely. and the Bandit. He's bounded down, loaded up and trucking. Are we going to do what they say can't be done? We've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. I'm eastbound, just like no bandit run.
Burt Reynolds oh, is yeah. eastbound and down that black Trans Am and rest in peace. Oh, um, yeah. And for Mara, he might be a, called a mustachioed macho man. <laughs> Since she doesn't like alliteration, apparently. Oh, wow. Well, you know, my favorite, my favorite Burt Reynolds, I'm a huge Golden Girls fan, and my favorite episode of the Golden Girls has Burt Reynolds as a guest star, and Sophia, the, the famous line from it is, you'll get over it, Dorothy, and if you don't, who cares? I'm going to see Burt Reynolds. Because <laughs> it was all about these tickets to see Burt Reynolds, and it was great. It was Pretty my great. favorite. It was a great show. Yeah. All right. That is a wrap for today. We'll be back whenever there's next major political news. Until then, you can send your timestamps for the top of the show to NPR Politics at npr.org. You can also write us there with any questions or comments you have. I'm Scott Detrow. I cover Congress. I'm Aisha Roscoe. I cover the White House. I'm Scott Horsley. I also cover the White House. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. Thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. We've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. All right, well, Mara, with that, we're going to let you go. We will talk to you again very soon. Great. Thanks for having me. (laughs) (laughs) Why did I not sound enthusiastic? I can try it again. (laughs) I'll try again. How about this? How about this? Thanks for having me, Scott. I'm looking forward to coming back. (laughs) Your questions were stupid. I'm out. (laughs) Very soon. Okay, let's try again. Goodbye, Mara. Goodbye, Scott. What do people usually say when you say goodbye to them?